Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. ESNY. Saturday, just before Mother's Day, Chip and I, this is our second podcast in two days. Um, very excited to continue our A through Z NBA kind of uh, season recap and uh, off-season overview series. And we are up with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and we are very excited to bring on a very talented um, content creator, and writer Evan Damarell for Forbes. Uh, he's a contributor for Forbes Sports. He also co-hosts the Locked On Cavs podcast, and he also is a staff writer for the Fear the Sword website. Evan, how's it going, man? Thank you so much for coming on. Oh well, first off, shucks for thinking I'm talented. Uh, just it's <laughs> a lot, but um. Thank you for having me, and things are going good. How are things going for you guys amid everything that's going on right now? Not bad, not bad. You know, I mean, um, Chip and I both work in the public school system. Chip is in Jersey. I'm in New York. Um, so a lot of a lot of staring at the computer, a lot of interacting yeah. with kids and adults um, via various, you know, Microsoft Teams, Google Meet, Zoom meetings, all of this. Uh, so just just doing the best, holding it down, you know, just making sure families and everyone um, is safe. Uh, I know me and Chip talk about this almost every week. Chip, I'm assuming, you know, m- much of the same for you, right? Same thing. Yeah, nothing's changed. I mean, Microsoft Teams every single day, got to interact with the students on there. And now, you know, the obligatory two uh we uh two days every week you got to meet with the students and the staff members or whatever and you know it's just it's very monotonous you know it's weird you know, because you're there you feel like the kids aren't really getting too much from that that they can't possibly be so i think the school is trying to uh try different things but how much can they really do when everybody's at home and they're going through what they're going through i mean it's it's hard no absolutely i get i get that and i mean Credit to you guys for keeping up with this and keeping on top of your students because I can't even imagine how hard of a transition and switch, especially on the fly, it was for both of you just to have like your normal day to day in the classroom, then you have to completely shift everything to a virtual environment. Like I work in engineering as a day to day thing, and um, I obviously didn't have to tackle as much as you guys because working from home has always been an option for me, so it's been an easier transition. So. I can't even imagine how hard it's of an adjustment it's been for you guys, but I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing okay and your families are doing well as well. Oh, we definitely appreciate that. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that you know, at the end of the day, we're all just doing kind of what we can. It's a it's a mm-hmm. very you know interesting, difficult, challenging time, but you know, uh, you just keep hoping that um, yeah, things are going to turn around the corner. Um, but. Uh, I think that brings us a good point to transition into all things uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, we were just talking a little bit online before. A lot of parallels between the Cavaliers franchise and the New York Knicks. Both Chip and I are, are Knicks guys. We try not to go too crazy into the Knicks, into this podcast, because we, we love kind of having a general hoops podcast, but it always fails. We always have some type of Knicks conversation. Like, it's just going to happen. Um but you know we've we whenever we bring a writer on the first thing we always try and tackle is really like the genesis of your fandom uh what got you into writing what um what specifically got you into writing with the sites that you're affiliated with so Evan Evan if you can just tell us a little bit about um you know the genesis of you becoming a Cavs fan 
and wanting to cover them um, as much as you do? Well, I will say I started out as a LeBron fan when I was a kid. I watched him when he was at St. Vincent St. Mary. I was in second or third grade at the time. And after seeing him in high school and just kind of getting caught up in the hype, um, I was like, okay, well, whatever team he ends up with, I'm going to be a fan of. And at the time, I was living in Cincinnati, mind you. So I had never been to Cleveland, never really been exposed to Cleveland or like any sports or atmosphere. So it's kind of funny. I ended up moving there after the fact. But um, no, so after like I started as a LeBron fan, but the team just really latched onto me and they became like my favorite team by far. And after he left, I stuck with the Cavs and. It's always been a fan since I've been uh, with them at their highest moment in 2016. Uh, my then girlfriend got mad at me because I said this was the happiest moment of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and that, um, yeah, there's a lot of lows and just bad and confusing and frustrating points in between. But I don't know. I think after the Cavs won in 2016, when the Indians blew that lead to the Cubs, I was upset, but I wasn't that bummed because I still think I was riding off the high of the Cavs winning the title. But I started writing and covering basketball as a whole. Um, when I was a senior in college, there was a website named hashtag basketball and the guy who was running it actually posted like a request thread on Reddit saying like, Hey, if you want to cover basketball, like DM me or give me your email or something like that. It's been a while. So I shot him an email saying, like, hey, I'm a huge Cavs fan. If you need somebody to cover the team, let me know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that position was already filled, so I started with the Charlotte Hornets, and then I jumped from the Hornets to the Thunder, and then eventually I led into the Cavs, and then I was with them for about two years, and then I joined Cavs Nation and Clutch Points for a little bit and did some work with them. And then um, I also joined the – before it was right down Euclid at the time it was King James gospel, which is still that now, which is a part of the fan side network. So I've been, I was with them for a little bit as well. And then one day uh, my editor at Forbes followed me on Twitter and sent me a DM saying like, Hey, Evan, um, what's your email? I need to talk to you about something. And I thought personally, I was in trouble. Like, uh, like I, did I plagiarize something? Like I'm sitting at my day job, like scrolling through everything I've written. I'm like, I don't think I did anything wrong here. So I said like, yeah, his name's Brett. I said, yeah, Brett, here's my email. Um, and he's like, okay, cool. And then he sent me a follow up saying like, what's your phone number? And what time are you okay to talk? I'm like at three o'clock fine. And he called me and said like, more or less, Hey, we want you to come on because we're starting our sports division here and we're trying to get a a writer established in every market for every team and we want you to cover the Cavs and I've that was three almost three years ago and haven't regretted it since and that's when I got my first like real exposure to the team and it's been a lot of fun it's honestly a surreal thing just to say like I tell people this a lot like I am a fan first and I have to like take my fan glasses off when I'm covering games and try and remain as neutral as possible but um it's super surreal to say like, yeah, no, these are guys I've watched on TV or I've grown up watching and I'm staring here face to face and them interact with them and having questions and doing stories and covering them. It's just super cool. And um, the Cavs are, you know, ever since LeBron left town aren't the most relevant franchise. So it can be tough sometimes covering them, but it's, it's a treat. Like I love every second of it and wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. That is super cool, man. Um, do you do, does Forbes give you the chance to, like cover the um, post game conferences or also yeah. oh, they've sent you to the games too. Yeah, no, I'm wow. tech. Yeah. I'm credentialed through Forbes. And so I go to games. Uh, well, before everything that's kind of shut down, I don't really know what's going to happen going forward, but um, just assuming that the media won't be present for a while, but yeah, no, I go to pregame, postgame locker room stuff. Um, there's a clip during media day when, my mic cut out when I was asking Colin Sexton a question about his off-season routine. <laughs> and Colin, like, beckons to me to speak up, and I get immediately flustered because I can – because, like, I'm like, okay, I'm on TV right now. Like, everyone yeah. can see me. And, like, my face turns beet red, and I, like, stutter through my question, and I just get through it as quickly as possible. And, like, everyone's blowing up my phone just saying, like, yeah, nice job on your TV. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it's, just, it's a fun time. But, um – yeah, no, it's like I said, it's it's just surreal overall. But after joining this publication, like having this exposure and access as much as I can, just it's cool. And I try not to abuse, like I, I try not to take it for granted. And um, 
it's like at the time, uh, like you touched on, I host a podcast called Locked On Cavs, and I was I was done, like beyond frustrated with the Cavs, and like that's like the last thing I wanted to talk about was just how bad they were looking. And, like Chris and I, my co-host, were just running out of things to talk about, like what's fun, what isn't fun, what is working, what isn't working, and we're about a little over a month removed from it, and I just I really miss it. Um, actually, Chris asked me the other day, saying, um what would you give to be able to just go to a game on a Wednesday night in Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse? And I said, man, no, I'd, I'd give a lot for that because oh, yeah. the environment, the atmosphere, just all that I, I miss all of it. And it's a lot of fun. And yeah, it's just, it's been tough, but Hey, hopefully they're back soon enough. We'll see. Yeah. Preaching to the choir on that one, man. Um, and yeah, uh, those are, those are some great stories. And I think that brings us into a, a really good transition you talked a lot about the the highs of, of being a Cavs fan, obviously culminating with that 2016 championship. Uh, the franchise is in a very different place now. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think the, the coaching change is really where I want to start here. You got the feeling that new management, when they hired John Beeline, had a, at least in their mind, a, a specific direction and philosophy where they wanted to go. Okay, they, they hired a college coach, a very respected college coach. They gave him, uh, you know, a, a decent deal. Uh, nine months into the deal, he resigns. There's a lot of controversy surrounding his time there. Um, but the other, the other thing that I thought was really interesting is so essentially – um, I forget the the exact amount of timing, but it but I think it was it was fairly recent after that, right? JB Bickerstaff takes over, and then he gets a long term deal. So the yeah. the first the first thing I really wanted to ask you um, is, you know, it, at least in in from my standpoint, it seems pretty rare that that happens, right? A, a coach yeah. gets fired that you invested time and money into uh, fairly quick, and then the the Coach that takes over, and don't get me wrong, J.B. Bickerstaff has been around. It ain't his first rodeo, but uh, he's never really been the the full-time head coach and, and gotten a lot of support from management yeah. in the terms of a long-term deal. They are just, you know, from whatever months or weeks that he took over, um, impressed by what he did to say, okay, this is our guy now. I don't know if they got um, backing from the players that they said, Hey, listen, JB's our guy, but what did you take from that whole situation? I know it's a, it's a complicated question, but, but yeah, what did you get from that? Unpack. Yeah. Uh, so you, just to touch on one thing you said before, um, it is rare for most teams, but it isn't rare for the Cavs because they did the same thing in 2016 when they were, I believe first place in the Eastern conference and they fired David Blatt and, named Ty Lue as the next head coach and guaranteed and signed him to a four-year contract extension then and there. Um, and there's like, it, it's weird. So time feels like a flat circle sometimes of things for the Cavs. And this coaching thing was definitely one of those scenarios. Um, so Dan Gilbert uh, <laughs> is hit or miss as an owner. Yeah. Um, he will open his checkbook and he's more than comfortable financing a team and going way over the budget in order to win a championship. Like, respect that. He paid the price and the cost of running a LeBron-led team. You're like, you're going to go dig, dig deep into your checkbook and your bank account there, which great. But his white whale for the longest time was hiring a college coach to coach the Cavs. Um, he's courted Tom Izzo. He's courted, courted Coach K. He's talked to, to um, John Calipari. He's talked to Bill Self. Like, the bigger the name, the better. And John Bayline obviously was a big name with his time at Michigan and his reputation overall. Um, so it turns out that based on what I've heard, and there's other people who can corroborate this story as well, who've written on it and expanded upon it. Um, John Bayline was a Dan Gilbert hire and Kobe Altman, the general manager of the Cavaliers at the time, they're currently um, was out interviewing lead assistants, I believe with Portland and Denver um, and they were like in the middle of the playoffs. And so they had downtime to talk with them and no, they announced the bayline hire and it was definitely out of left field. Wow. And it was definitely a Dan Gilbert thing where that was it. But the Cavs are also in a, a franchise where they try to make everything seem like everything's perfect and everything's great. Um, so when the bayline hire was announced, they just preached on the fact that it's all about player development. He has a reputation of really turning 
low-star recruits into actual NBA caliber talent. Like you look at Karis Levert, it's always just like was like the, the common buzzword name. Like, listen, he helped develop Karis Levert. He's developed plenty of other players at his time in Michigan and any, every other stop. Maybe they're not NBA caliber players, but he's consistently been good at what he does. And it just kind of turned out really quick that John Bayline was not equipped for this job. Uh, in training camp, players were really graded by the fact that he wanted to preach fundamentals with vet, grown men who've been playing this game for quite a while, like Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson. And there's the problem within itself that maybe not Thompson, but more so Love, that if they have a problem with the head coach, it triples down to the rest of the roster and it has an impact then. So it just kind of just was, that was the problem there is Bayline is practicing fundamentals. And there's just a lot of weird things that's looking back are huge red flags that like at the time, like you kind of try to look past Um, in training and preseason, the Cavs were blown out by the Celtics. And apparently Bayline was so beside himself that Gilbert and Altman had to meet with him the following day and say, it's, it's just the preseason. These don't count. Like it's going to be okay. And like, yeah, it's a big, it's a big yikes moment. And then, um, he was super, more or less ran the team like a tyrant. Um, was very angry that the NBA Players Association and the Cavs as a whole wouldn't let him schedule a practice for Christmas Day because the Cavs were off that day. <laughs> what? Um, he likes, he just, it's just, it's, it's fat. John Bayline's a, I mean, super charismatic guy, um, very friendly, very charming, gives a lot of great quotes, a lot of good insight. Like, can really play the media well um that's something i've just kind of come to the conclusion with after being around him for so long for the 54 games he was the Cavs head coach but um yeah no the he quickly lost the respect of the locker room and the players just more or less deferred the jd every single time because jd is an established nba coach i mean there is some people view it's nepotism because his dad um is on kobe altman's staff and okay. um so that people feel like that was part of it as well, but no, the players just trust and respect him. And, um, it was not a surprise. I, um, heard about, I think it's the game before the all-star break. One of the Cavs staffers joked with me saying like, yeah, this is going to be John's last game as coach. I'm like, no, it's not. I'm like, listen, I'm like, I know the players aren't happy, but I feel like they're going to get this to like, at least the end of the year. And then like you move on clean house again and just, Try again on your head coaching search. But they're like, no. And apparently, oh, here's another Bayline thing I completely forgot about. Um, when the Cavs traded Jordan Clarkson, he was beside himself and didn't know how to adjust his rotations because he leaned so heavily on Clarkson and the Cavs were gobsmacked that night. <laughs> um, it's just it's just clearly he wasn't equipped to be an NBA head coach. And it's a shame because he's a nice enough guy. But um, no, JB was, has been head coach for 11 games for the Cavs and – it's night and day in terms of comparisons, and it's just a lot like the Ty Lue, David Blatt situation where maybe, just maybe, this wouldn't have gotten so bad for the Cavs. Granted, the Cavs had LeBron the first time around, so winning does cure all wounds and try and covers up some of the ugliness of things. But like as bad as Cleveland was this at some points this season, um, your Knicks especially had a, had a vendetta oh, against yeah. Bayline and the Cavs. Yes. But, um, yes. uh, yeah. So um, like that was always a problem. And but it's just been like a revelation where the players look a lot more locked in, look a lot more engaged. Um, JD, he's getting a little weird with some of his rotations. He's playing Larry Nance at small forward, he's playing like a three big band lineup with Nance, Kevin Love, and either Tristan Thompson and Andre Drummond. Like, like just kind of experimenting with oh, he wants to play Kevin Porter Jr., a little bit of point guard, which is you know, eyebrow raising, but. Whatever, I'm I'm here for it because the Cavs are as bad as they are. Can kind of take these opportunities, to learn what does and doesn't work. But yeah, no. Just long story short, like this isn't the first time this has happened for the Cavs, and I think what mostly people who cover this team, myself included, want is just some semblance of normalcy and stability at the coaching position. And JB may not be like the sexiest hire. He may not be the best possible guy for the job, but he's at least going to bring that to the table for the Cavs. And that's a right direction to build this culture that they've been striving for ever since LeBron left town the second time around. I, um, I, there's one thing that, that just popped up in my mind as you're talking about, um, Bayline and I want to let Chip get in here too, but how much do you attribute, uh, Bayline struggles to the fact that a college coach typically exercises a lot of control over um 
the team, the, the players, student athletes, recruiting, everything, and, and having that massive adjustment to the NBA where, like you said, he's besides himself that the Players Association won't let him schedule a, a, pra- a practice on Christmas Day. Um, which is like wild to me that, but um, because you you know you also talk about some some fairly positive character you know uh, traits that he has. Um, do you attribute most of the failures to that, or is it just that personality wise, like he's just not made for the NBA and and it just wasn't a right fit? I think it, it was a little bit of both. I think he again maybe he had a little bit too much hubris going into this where he leaned heavily on what made him successful at the college level and players I know spoke to off the record about this discounted to me. Like they didn't care. He was successful in college. Right. Um, he's a rookie NBA head coach and he's learning this as he goes. And um, he lost the respect of the locker room pretty quickly, but I know and I didn't touch on this before, but when he compared the players to thugs and he said he meant, Slugs, right? Slugs, yeah. Oh, the thug slug things, yeah. Yeah, um, I know a lot of players view that as like having. I mean, you have a locker room of mostly African American men, right? That you're trying to coach and lead, like that. That was the moment where he more or less lost the locker room, and for some reason, the Cavs kept this slow march of death towards him eventually stepping down. Um, but a lot of players had a hard time coming back and playing from under that, and. They just started deferring to JB even more so after that. But, yeah, no, I think it's just – like, to answer your question, I think it's a mixture of both where he leaned so heavily on the fact of what made him successful and he wasn't willing to adapt and, you know, be a bit more flexible to the NBA game. And then just a lot of the stuff he – like, he couldn't get out of his own way with some things he said and did and the fact that players, you know, have – again, you're having grown men here. You're trying to, like, use your methods at work of, like, 18, 19, even 20-year-olds and – you have guys in their late twenties, early thirties, like that's it's not gonna fly and you quickly just lose your voice and lose your momentum and it just kind of feels like a lost cause after that. I think um I, I think too, you know, it's like sometimes the cover up is worse than the than the situation. I think um Bayline, I mean, not not to say that things would have been better had he come out and he said, Listen, I I, 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 I misspoke or but then just to try and cover up and say, no, I didn't say that. I said slugs. It just, the whole thing just Such really, really escalated. It became really a bad. huge, huge mess. Um, and you knew after that, I mean, we were you know, only talking about when, you know, not if. Um, yeah. But I do want to let Chip get in here too uh, to ask you a question, Evan. Chip is always, he's our, he's in terms of our halves, he's always the more analytically inclined. No. He's, he's no, he's he's really good with it. So I I do want to let him get in here and and uh, and ask you a question real quick. No, I was just gonna say I, I think uh, all coaches are control. All college coaches are control freaks because they're the most powerful people on the campus. Yeah. They control everything. Like Nick Saban is the most powerful person in the state of Alabama. They always say like college coaches control everything. Look at Joe Paterno, all the control he had at Penn State. I won't go down there, but. Even Coach K, when he took over Team USA, he tells the story of how he wanted to tell he wanted to schedule all these practices, and Kobe Bryant had to step in and be like, "Dude, we don't need practices. We're professional <laughs> players. <laughs> like, yeah. you don't need to schedule practices for us." But uh, anyway, I, Evan, I wanted to ask you some questions about, uh, I guess, post All Star break, but when JB Bickerstaff took over before the All Star break. Uh, the Cavs' uh, metrics in terms of defense were horrible. They were yeah. 29th in defensive rating and 30th in opponents' effective field goal percentage. But uh, and in uh, I think 54 games with a beeline pre All Star break, and then in uh, the 11 games with Bickerstaff, they were five and six post All Star break. They were 17th in defensive rating and 21st in opponents' effective field goal percentage. Like. Obviously, the sample size is small, but yeah. do you think that the improvements there are sustainable, or is it just kind of fool's gold? Do you think that there's some defensive talent there? Um, I think it's, I think it's more so the fact that the roster is juiced playing for a coach that they want to play for. Um, I don't really okay. think it's sustainable because, in the grand scheme of things, if you look, if you break down Cleveland's roster, 
Uh, Colin Sexton isn't a good defender. Chevy Osmond still isn't a good defender. Darren Garland is an abysmal defender. Tristan Thompson's okay. Matthew Dellavedova tries his best. Kevin Love isn't good. Larry Dance Jr. is kind of out of position. Kevin Porter shows potential. Um, I can keep going down the roster here, but it's telling when the Cavs coaching staff and players tell me they view Alfonso McKinney as their best perimeter defender. Even this is before and after uh, the Bayline era. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's kind of just like yeah, it's fool's gold. Uh, I think the Cavs are still a bad defensive team, and it's just those are the growing pains of a rebuilding roster and just infusing a lot of young talent who is going to take their time getting their feet wet and getting acclimated to playing against kids and transitioning from playing against kids to playing against grown men, and that's just kind of where I'm at. Like they're they looked marketably improved under JV for sure, but I don't. I'm sure the numbers will come a little bit back down to earth and a little bit be a little bit more realistic once you know if the Cavs kept playing more than just the 11 games they had a bigger staff at the helm. I think it's like uh, when the baseball baseball team fires the manager and they go on a win streak. Yeah, like it's, that happens every like time that. a baseball team fires a manager. Uh, speaking of Colin Sexton, though, I think we both wanted to ask you about Colin Sexton. But uh, I noticed that he played, uh, according to basketball reference, he played 100% of his minutes at point last year. And this year, he played 77% of his minutes at the two guard. Uh, and I didn't realize his three-point numbers were this good. He was 44% on catch-and-shoots last year and 42% on catch-and-shoots this year. He can play off ball, obviously. And you said, he, obviously, he's not a good defender. But Garland's an even worse defender, and yeah. Garland played 100% of his minutes at the point this year. Um, so I guess the question is, do you see them as like a sustainable duo in the backcourt, Garland and Sexton, when, like you just said, neither one of them is a plus defender right now? Um, so this gets me in hot water with Cavs fans, but no, mm-hmm. is my short answer. Okay. Um, the buzzword when they hired Bayline and when they drafted Darius was that they were going to try and replicate the Portland model with Jeremy Miller and CJ McCollum. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. But this is like comparing a rookie Darius Garland to what Damian Lillard is at right now, who is putting up absurd numbers. Like that's, that's a little bit far fetched to me. And I just don't think it's sustainable just because of the defensive concerns and the fact that there is a lot of positional overlap between Sexton and Garland. And the fact that, I think the Cavs don't really know what they're doing yet, really, when it comes to this rebuild. Like, they can talk about this, but people get on my case, like, expecting the playoffs next season. Um, maybe fans are a little spoiled with having LeBron James and Kyrie Irving coming through town to kind of elevate what the expectation really is, especially, like, those four years that they're – well, three years they had together and four years LeBron was in town. And, um, yeah, no, I don't think it's sustainable at all. Um I'm kind of at the camp where Colin Sexton, even though he was showing potential as a playmaker under J.D. Bakerstaff, um, he's an endearing player for sure. He's fun as hell to watch. He's one of the most exciting players for the Cavs that the Cavs currently have on the roster. Um, but there's just concerns with his playmaking and defense where I feel personally that long-term he projects as an elite six-man for the Cavs, which isn't a bad thing for an eighth overall pick. I don't want people to think I'm like sliding Colin or his ability as a player, but... Um, I just like what Darius Garland brings to the table is more of a traditional point guard, and I'd rather have a more traditional two guard pair alongside him that can more or less. A good comparison I like to draw to is when they had Isaiah Thomas and Avery Bradley playing together, where you have a defensive minded two guard that can kind of mask the defensive deficiencies of Garland. Like I think I'd rather have that than just have two revolve revolving pedestals at one and two, and then you have the three being overexerted on the perimeter and then you have your big men being taxed trying to protect the rim like it's just it's silly and it feels counterintuitive what the kid any nba team should be trying to do especially with how perimeter oriented and guard strong this league has become like it's just it's silly that and colin sexton six one and watching him have to defend james harden when they played the rockets was just absolutely <laughs> brutal for me to watch and yeah i just feel bad for him because it's just it's just tough like you're putting you're it's not a favorable position I think I'd want to be in. I definitely feel like Colin doesn't want to be. I mean, he won't admit it. He's one of those dudes who wants to rise up to the occasion. He plays with a lot of heart and hustle. But, yeah, no, it just definitely doesn't seem like a fair situation overall to me. Sexton is so interesting to me. Um, I did a ton of research uh, on him coming out of the draft because he was in a name that was associated with the Knicks 
Um, yeah, when they Garland were around too. that area. Yeah, yeah, when they were around that area. Uh, and Sexton's development to me has been very surprising because I thought offensively he would actually not be where he is now. Um, but at least reputation-wise, uh, defensively, he had a little bit more skill or heart and hustle. Uh, and it's interesting because those two things have kind of switched. He's developed yeah. a lot more offensively, but defensively not much. So would I be correct in, in kind of saying that I think, you know, for the Cavs in terms of their development, that giving the keys to Garland as the primary playmaker would probably be the best outcome for them and having Sexton play off the ball more. And even if he does become a sixth man, you're right. That's not a bad outcome for an eighth overall pick. And you would still, um, I think you can still sell to the fan base. Listen, these are guys that we drafted. These are guys that we're developing and they're still playing a, you know, a fairly decent role in our franchise. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that assessment. Um, I feel like the Cavs do envision Darius as the lead guard of the future. Um, so Darius's rookie season is a little hard um, for me to really give like a true gauge on because if you wanted to give me like an actual wanted me to give him an actual letter grade, it would be he had a pretty bad rookie year. So I'd give him a solid D to possibly even an F, but. I'm a little bit more fair. I'm not as hard on, you know, kids, like 18, 19 year olds that are transitioning to this level because Darius only played five games at Vanderbilt before he had his, he tore his meniscus and he really wasn't playing against elite talent then because there wasn't SEC play. I think the biggest opponent he played was Kent state, which is a local college in Northeast Ohio that plays in the mid American conference. So granted it's still not like power five or yeah, like a power five conference that he's playing. So he's essentially going from playing high school basketball to professional basketball. So I'm a little bit out on him still of like saying like what exactly Darius Garland is, but I do know the Cavs do envision him as their point guard of the future. And they do envision Sexton. It's like you said, more playing a traditional or not a traditional, but excuse me, off ball role where he is more so operating just, offensively and um, just kind of hoping that maybe the defense rounds out a little bit and like some of his flaws and deficiencies kind of round up because I rolled my eyes when the Cavs drafted Colin Sexton and one of his biggest strengths people were hyping up was the fact that he worked. He just has like an incredible work ethic. I'm like, yeah, okay. That's usually just like code word for, he's not the best, but he'll still work his hardest. Right. But um, He's not that talented, but you know, yeah, he's got that yeah, worker like mentality. Exactly. And one of his biggest concerns coming out of Alabama was his future three point shooting percentage. And I'm like, okay, well this isn't going to work. So when George Hill went down with injury and Ty Lee was fired, it just it feels so long ago after recounting all this. Um, they more or less handed the keys to Sexton to let him kind of learn from his mistakes and grow. And he became a very competent three-point shooter. And he's just kind of like growing and growing. And then um, had a solid finish to his rookie season. He didn't make the Rising Stars game. And I think, or I know personally, he took that as a slight that he didn't get voted in by the coaching or whoever does the selection process for that. Um, and he had a strong finish his rookie season. He finished second team all rookie. And... I was excited to see what the future had for him, and then he showed a lot of potential, um, just in terms of offensive prowess. And but he's just kind of—I don't know—he's a hard player, really. Like where I said, like it's cliche that hard work just, you know, counterbalances not that skill or like naturally gifted player. But no, Colin just works hard and just works tirelessly at his craft until he can mask these deficiencies and try and make them better because like i said like his three-point shooting was abysmal in college but he made it his primary and the running joke for the longest time was is he wouldn't take threes he would step right inside the perimeter and take a long two and rather take that instead and then at one point just just one game i forget i think it was against the rockets actually where colin just flat out refused to step inside the perimeter and he was just shooting threes and making them and then it became a consistent clip and now he's turning into a very solid and oh, just a good three-point shooter and I won't mock it with Colin when he says, listen, he's working on his craft and he's trying to like get better. Um, Cavs players I've spoken to said like this quarantine's hitting him the hardest because he's one of those guys where 
he doesn't have a lot of hobbies outside of basketball. Um, I've asked him before. I'm like, well, what do you do in your spare time? He's like, oh, I work out. <laughs> Is that it? He's like, yeah, I work out. And then, like, Cavs rookie Dylan Windler, like, wants Joke to be saying, he's like, I, I don't think Colin has a TV. I, he doesn't play video games. He doesn't really watch TV. He listens to music and collects shoes. But, like, he's like, I think he's like a robot where he'll just sit on the couch and he'll, he won't sleep. He'll just stare off at, like, into space. And then, like, his alarm will go off saying, like, okay, we have practice. And then he gets up and just goes and plays hoops. And I have faith in Colin Sexton becoming a good basketball player. Um, I don't really want to put a cap on what his ceiling is just based on the fact that he's kind of exceeded all my expectations at this point. Yeah. And I'm just kind of excited to see what his third season has. And he was having a fun sophomore campaign, too, before everything kind of came to a screeching halt like it did. I'm sure that endears him to the fan base too. I mean, um, oh, yeah, they dude, absolutely love Knicks him. Knicks fans uh, literally eat up any story like that, even if the player is not particularly good, um, because that's just kind of the culture of the basketball around the city, um, at least historically. And you know, yeah. I I think I could see some similarities with Cleveland and the way kind yeah. of Colin carries himself in that way as well. Um, yeah. Fans love Colin for sure, just because he's like, like I said, he's the most exciting player to watch. But he also just he works hard and it pays off. And Cleveland fans have a soft spot for high energy players, and like Colin's just another example of that. For sure, Chip, I'm gonna throw the uh, the ball to you. You have anything else for Evan? Oh, I just want to ask the Kevin Love question. Oh yeah, yeah, you yeah. Were. Definitely, definitely, <laughs> you definitely. say you cover. You said you covered. You said you covered the games, Evan. I were you there when uh, Kevin Love made his first comments post John Beeline's uh, firing? Did you see his face and how happy was it on a scale of one to ten? Um, I was. I wouldn't say happy. Um, Kevin is a Kevin's a good liar. I'll put it that way. Um, he's really good. At, got a good got a good poker face, I guess. Yeah, he. Um, so. When I'm sure you guys have, I don't know how much you've read into this, but there was the infamous blowout he had with Kobe Altman in the front office in Bayline. Like he cited the fact that John was old mm-hmm. and out of touch is one of the reasons why he was so frustrated. But it's another thing to unpack. Um, when he signed that extension, the Cavs front office and ownership said, "Like, yeah, we'll be competing for the playoffs." And um, he broke. He suffered that broken bone in his foot and had surgery early into that season, and then. Ty Lue was fired, and JR is sent into exile, and they trade Corver, and they trade Hill, and they bring back in Del Vadova, and then more or less when Kevin comes back from injury, they're rebuilding, and they're intentionally tanking at that point to try and get a top pick in the upcoming draft class, because it's the Zion class, so you really want to try and get the best odds you can, and um, the writing was kind of on the wall. Uh, I know this for a fact that he quietly asked the team, like saying, like, listen, if you guys are going in a different direction, I want you to trade me. Like, I want to be able to go play for a meaningful playoff team, maybe even a championship for whatever, how much longer I have in my career, because he's realistic in the fact that he is injury prone and there could be an injury that could be career and altering or even ending. So he wants to try and make the most of whatever time he has left. But because of his man of contract, and because of his injury history and because of his um, just age and, you know, overall attitude, it's just Kevin becoming became passive aggressive this year. So it's like, yeah, no, like body language police is a fun thing with him, but he's a good liar <laughs> in that aspect. But um, when Bayline resigned from the position, because the Cavs didn't fire him, they quote unquote reassigned him to another role within the organization, which what I told was a nice way of putting that he didn't want to give up his full contract and they're still negotiating how much money the Cavs were to get him to make him leave. Okay. Um, so I think they, they ironed out those details because, <clears throat> excuse me, Bayline has not been in Cleveland ever since uh, J.B. Biggerstaff took over as coach. But I just remember because it was, it was such an awkward, like, moment. Like, there was a weird energy in the media room and it was absolutely full, which is weird for the Cavs to begin with because the media outside of like beat writers who were dedicated to cover this team like weren't there but like every news station was there to interview JD for his first job but they like called Kevin over and Kevin was just real with us he's like oh it means a lot he's like I get it he's like it just it wasn't meant to be he was really dry and just kind of implying like yeah no this wasn't working and then um 
just he's like, oh no, I appreciate him keeping it real with us and just apologizing to us. And he's like, it takes a lot of balls and a lot of heart to say that. And I said, huh. And then I think a media member like tried to say like, well, do you feel like you guys are responsible for making him quit? And then Kevin's just like, no, not really. So it, I think maybe that was his way of saying he's happy, but I, I know for a fact he was one of the guys who was super frustrated with the Bayline situation. And I'm sure um, if I pressed him on it, if for some reason he was being completely candid and open with me, I'm sure he would be like through the roof happy because he actually has a history with J.B. Bickerstaff because when he was in Minnesota, J.B. is one of the assistants, so they had an established relationship. Oh, okay. So, yeah, no, it, it kind of definitely worked out in their favor in the end, but like, you know, Kevin's a good liar, and he knows not to make the headlines for all the wrong reasons, but um, somehow, yeah. some way, the Cavs are kind of dysfunctional, and they still find a way of getting out there. Like, his, him telling Kobe Altman, go ahead and find me, I have enough money already, <laughs> so... <laughs> Boss move, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he, yeah, that's a that's a power move. Like, I wouldn't know what to say to that. I think I wouldn't find him at that point, just out of respect for saying that. Yeah. Um, I, that actually brings up a, a kind of like a uh, piggyback question on top of that. So, uh, what do you see as Kevin Love's future with the Cavs? I mean, um, what type of package would they even have to put together to get rid of his contract? Um, well, because of the pandemic, there's a good chance that the salary cap is going to go down. Yeah. Um, I know that the Cavs are preparing for two possibilities where one where that doesn't happen and it's business as normal, but I think it's becoming more realistic that it will happen. And when it does, they expect that Kevin will be here next year, along with Andre Drummond, um, to eat up most of their salary cap because Kevin's contract, like I, like I highlighted or laid out, like there's a lot of things going against him getting traded and getting his way out of Cleveland. And right. um, with a reduced cap, that's definitely hard. But I know from what I heard leading up to the deadline, teams were asking Cleveland for a first round pick to take on his contract because of his attitude and because of his blowups with management and the coaching staff. Like, General managers are saying, like, listen, I can't go to my owner and say, like, this guy has an attitude problem and he's cool, like, volatile. Like, we need some type of compensation to make it easier on us to do that. And if you're in Cleveland's position, why would you give him a first-round pick? So the Cavs are kind of hoping that they can smooth things out with JB as the head coach. But um, I think after things have kind of just become – I've wrote about this at Forbes. Like it was at the point of overturn after that blowout with the coaching staff and with Kobe Allman and everybody else. Where like he was screaming at everybody in a closed uh, behind doors behind the scene, like closed doors practice. Like the media wasn't present at all. Like they canceled all media things, and then we found out why they canceled all media availability. But um, he'll eventually be moved, but I don't see it happening next year. Um, I see the Cavs. They're in a weird space right now. Yeah. Um, where they, like JB Bickerstaff recently said in an interview, and Colin Sexton recently said in an interview, like, yeah, no, we're going to try and make the playoffs next year. And, like, I raised my eyebrow reading that. And then I kind of started hearing this from other people in the organization. So I think this is an organizational mentality where they're going to try and make the playoffs. And I guess if you have a Kevin Love, albeit a very frustrated Kevin Love, um, then you have a player like Andre Drummond eating up most of your salary cap. Like you kind of have to try and go for it at that point and see what happens. But um, I don't think Kevin's going to get moved anytime soon because the Cavs aren't really in the position to move. If they get an additional first-round pick, I feel like if they do this over the summers, what they're going to attach to Kevin's contract and hopefully try and move him to another team. And there are options out there, but um, I don't think a lot of teams are going to be lining up to take on a injury-prone power forward in his early 30s who is expected to make, I believe, almost $30 million next year. So, it's yeah, there's not a lot of interested suitors out there right now, and it's just kind of unfortunate overall. If he didn't sign that extension with the Cavs, I don't think it'd be for the best if he could move on, but I feel like he's kind of trapped here at this point. How would you say that that affects... I think he could get... Oh, sorry, man. Go ahead. No, no, it's all right. No, I was I... just going to say... I was just going to say, I think he could get moved next summer in 2021 like a team that misses out on the superstars like they could go for love as the next guy that's when i that's my like when i think you could get moved i I agree with that and i've also 
heard and have written about this where when Giannis finally makes his decision, a lot of teams that are trying to like allocate salary cap space to try and convert Giannis to their team. Um, but yeah, no, I think like you said, Kevin is a good like maybe plan C if you can't get another yeah. big name free agent sure. where you can kind of like add him as that complimentary second or third fiddle and mm-hmm. it works out then. But um, yeah, no, I think next season he'll be here. Maybe the Cavs really try and gain momentum at the deadline because that drum and trade was definitely a surprise. But um, we'll see what happens. The, the Cavs are kind of a team that plays with their cards close to their chest to begin with and. Uh, maybe they have a trade in the works, but I also wouldn't really bat an eye if Kevin's here next year and we just kind of hear more of the same about how he's pissed and frustrated with the situation and wants out, but the Cavs just kind of have no options at this point. Um, that definitely makes sense. Um, some of the like the little uh, research I did into like Cavs Reddit, uh, Cavs Twitter, um, talking a lot about uh, you know the addition of Andre Drummond and also Tristan Thompson. Um, what, what do you feel, is there a possibility that Tristan Thompson is back with the Cavs next year? I saw a lot of, of, of people on Reddit, you know, are kind of, they, they like Thompson as opposed to Drummond. They say he, you know, his defense is, is obviously better, um, a bit more of a positive effect in the locker room, you know, well liked for the most part. I'm sure he might've had some issues with Bayline and, and, you know, maybe, kind of that transition from the championship team to where they are now. You know, I don't know that any player is going to be particularly happy about that. But um, what do you see as as Thompson's future there? Well, Tristan, he brings a lot to the table off the court for the Cavs. Like you said, yeah, he had a hard time transitioning from playing for like consistently being in the NBA finals to being an NBA bottom feeder. I mean, it's a harsh reality to kind of like take in if you're transitioning from that, but he also helps that you have Rich Paul as your agent who, from what I heard, Rich walked him through the situation saying like, listen, I'll try and get you out of here as soon as I can, but you need to play the good company guy. Like you cannot create a scene. You can't make it hard for me. You can't make it hard for others to create, to destroy leverage for yourself at the trade market or whatever. But, um, at the deadline, Tristan told the Cavs that he wants out, and the Cavs had a few offers on the table for him, but none of them were doable for what Cleveland is trying to do because they're not trying to um, completely decimate what they have going on right now. So um, from what I know for a fact and based on what I've heard and based on what a lot of people have heard, I've known this since probably maybe a week or two after Andre Drummond's trade here. Andre, by has every intention of opting into his player option, yeah. which is going to effectively take Cleveland out of free agency. Okay. Um, and at that point, they more or less told the move from what I gathered and from what I've heard is trading for Drummond is more or less telling Tristan, like, thank you for everything. You are the most tendered Cleveland player on this roster. He's been here since 2011. Um, but your time is up. Wow. And the Cavs are going to try and execute a sign-and-trade to try and get something in return for him because they weren't able to move him at the deadline. But there's going to be a team in free agency this year that is going to be pretty happy if they get with Thompson. And, yeah, no, it's um, if I had to pick between Andre Drummond and Tristan Thompson, I think I'd pick Thompson 10 times out of – yeah, 10 times out of 10. I'd think about that for a second. But um, just to like his intangibles and the fact that yeah, he had an awkward transition, but he's actively embraced taking a lot of these younger players under his wing and doing a lot of things that really LeBron did for him and Kyrie when LeBron came back because I've spoken to Tristan about this. I've spoken to Della Vadova about this too. Really, the thing that LeBron really teaches you that's invaluable is he teaches you how to take care of your body. He teaches you how to properly rest and maintain yourself and like how to the right things you need to do in practice to make sure that you're making the most of the situation and what you can do in-game situations and like more or less just showing these young guys how to build sustainable success. And that's what Tristan's trying to do with a lot of these young guys. And I know Kevin Porter was a big understudy of his and Kevin Porter is one of Cleveland's more exciting rookies because he brings a lot to the table. And um, yeah, no, I think the Cavs would like to have Tristan back, but I think he's going to price himself out pretty quickly because he again wants to try and play for championships and titles because he's, going to be entering either he is entering his 30s or he'll be entering his 30s soon and he wants to be able to play meaningful basketball while Cleveland's still trying to figure it out and 
the fact that they are the Cavs already have so much money committed to drum and love and dance, it just kind of seems silly to throw a massive contract at another big guy, especially when you have a lot of young players that are going to be eligible for extension soon. Like it's just it's kind of it is what it is, and his time's definitely up. But I think trading for Drummond more or less was the first like major sign that the Cavs are ready to move on and. They're going to try and do everything they can to recruit some assets, but Thompson's, Thompson's time in Cleveland is more or less over, mm. which is kind of a shame, but it's the reality of the situation. Um, I have one more question, and it's draft-related, and then I want to get um, Chip in here to finish us off. Okay. Uh, I've seen some reports out there that the Cavs are uh, very enamored with Obi Toppin, um, yeah. you know, one of the... the <laughs> best players coming out of college I've, I've, the the initial research that I've done on him you know talks about you know some really um profound offensive skill not a lot on the defensive side um if the Cavs really view Darius Garland as their point guard of the future it you know no question it matters where they pick who's on the board but do you think that they would pass on um I don't think they would pass on maybe like a LaMelo ball, but do you think they would pass on a facilitator to bring in maybe that, that score down low or someone who's going to operate um, more in that, that forward wing type role? Or how do you see them them kind of leaning towards? If So I'll answer this two ways. If I was running the draft room, I would be looking at wing depth and Eddie Deddy Adi Avidaj, I think, or something. Avidaj, something yeah, like that. yeah, yeah I, that's I, it. I'm, I'm gonna be, br- I'd be brutal with it. Like, I'd be looking at him. Um, like, he's definitely an option. Maybe you can plug in Anthony Edwards two and just like Kevin Porter up to three, and then you have Jetty Osmond come off the bench. Like, I'd be looking at Blake Depp. Okay, but at the same time, the Cavs are kind of a franchise that they can't be too particular, and they shouldn't be drafting best player available at this juncture of their rebuild, and they just need to grab the best available talent. If uh, Obi Tobin is the best player available for the Cavs, I guess. I mean, the Cavs, again, are in this position where they accumulate talent, and then instead of flirting with the playoffs this year, maybe in two or three years, once they kind of have an identity and know where they're going and, like, who is and isn't starting and who is and isn't bench depth, like, you kind of have that idea of what you want to do next. Like, you asked about LaMelo Ball. Like, I think I'd be very happy with LaMelo Ball <laughs> playing for the Cavs because um, it drive Kevin Love up a wall to playing for a second team that drafts the point guard three years in a row. But, yeah. Um, I think I'd be comfortable with that. I'd be comfortable with Onyeko and Kongwu. Um, Dev, even Devin Vassell out of Florida State, I think it'd be a great option. For I, I like him a lot, man. I like him I a lot. Too. He's gonna he's gonna go higher than I think a lot of mock drafts have him. I could see that as well. Like I think just he's one of the more safer picks I'd say just in terms of three and D potential. And again, the Cavs just can't be too picky when it comes to who they select in the draft. And um, I mean, it could be another point guard, and I'll be kind of miserable with that choice. But I mean, it could be James Wiseman as well. I have a lot of draft friends who are telling me is not the right choice for any team. He's more of a top 15 pick than he is a top five pick and I'm like yikes but um yeah yeah I'm just kind of indifferent on who the Cavs hit I'm not really doing a lot of deep stuff in the draft because I still don't know when the lottery is going to happen but once that I have an idea of where Cleveland's picking I'll start like selling myself on prospects but I know at least from the conversations I've had with the organization that their big board more or less has Ball, Toppin, Wiseman, Killian Hayes is another one they're enamored with, Denny as well. Um, and then in, like players like Onyeka and Kunwu and Isaac Okoro and Devin Vassell are definitely on there. And then Anthony Edwards is on there too, but I think the Cavs are just kind of trying to, trying to remain realistic where maybe they aren't picking number one. And they're just they're scouting all the top talent. And the Cavs scouting department's pretty good at what it does. Um, so I have faith in who they pick, but at the same time, like I'm not going to be too, too pick, picky or hung up on who they end up selecting because – Again, they're a team that is star for talent, and you just kind of have to swing with the best player available and then figure it out later. That makes sense. Chip, do you have uh, any other questions for Evan? Uh, yeah, I figure we should ask Evan when we have him. Uh, Evan, did you ever have any uh, dealings when you were covering the team with Brock Aller? Oh, yes. I did not. Have not. You didn't? 
I didn't. Oh, that's that. too bad. I was, well, I was, I'll... I was hoping you did because we don't know anything about him as Knicks fans. True. Um. Yeah, no, I haven't really interacted. I don't interact with, in terms of media that isn't Cleveland. I think I've spoken to Rick Bottle, and I've spoken with a few guys who cover the Warriors because, um, just just threw over time, and um, this is a funny story, but like. They laughed me out of the room for this. I was working on a story about Darius Garland and like his growth as a rookie, and I was working at the Warriors PR, saying like, "Hey, I need to like just for Steve Kerr's media availability, like, is it okay if I ask, like, can you pull him aside? Like, I just ask him his pregame, like, it's not gonna be that busy." I'm like, "Okay, cool." So I asked Kerr, I'm like, "Hey, you've worked with Steve Nash and the Suns. You've worked, you've coached Steph Curry close firsthand. I'm saying Darius Garland's the same player as either of them, but do you ever see any?" comparable things or potential in that regard. Steve Kerr just looks at me dead dead in my eyes and just says, <laughs> I'll be frank with you, I, I watched maybe, the first time I watched Darius Garland play basketball professionally it was maybe two or three days ago we were putting together a scouting report for tonight's game. I'm like, huh, and just completely <laughs> deflated. And I'm like, and then the Warriors guy's like, yeah, I got you there. And I'm like, yeah, sure did. But like, you know, um, no, I, I, I've never... Knicks guys I haven't really interacted much with and um I'm trying to think. Yeah, no, I I've been to, I went to both Knicks games when they were in Cleveland, so or one of the Knicks games in Cleveland. It's been so long. Um so yeah, no, I I mostly kinda stick with Cavs media, but like if it's more specifically like I'm working on a story, I mosey on over to the visitors locker room and um pick the brain and then usually I kinda rub elbows with their local media that so sorry to disappoint you guys in that no 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 not at all man i mean you know the little that we've heard of him is um you know kind of the the cap wizardry that needed to be conducted to get the 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 space open for lebron to come in in 2014 they uh, a lot of reports have credited him um for that you know so i guess as knicks fans we're excited in that sense but we really don't know much about him you know we're we're also at the point where we we kind of have a a mystery man up at the top leon rose is um everybody's favorite connections guy you know no one has a bad thing to say about him but he's never been an executive so this is his first hire he kept scott perry and we're rolling the dice we're we're gonna see what happens as as knicks fans we've become very accustomed to that um, but yeah, you know, I mean, he, he, based on initial reports seemed decent and, and, uh, competent qualified. Yeah. Which qualified, which is definitely important, which is not yeah. a, not a word that we often associate with Nick. Not very Nick hires. Nixie. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you guys this before we wrap up. Would you rather have, well, I feel like this is an obvious answer, but like the baggage that comes with Dan Gilbert, do you think it's as bad that it comes with Dolan? I don't, I mean, um, that's a tough question to answer, like, but here, here's the thing with Dolan and like, I don't know if Chip has a different feeling than, than me, but this is the first year that I've been a Nick fan that I've actually heard positive things about Dolan. Like I, like every year prior to this one, it it's always been, he stepped in and, and made the trade and gave up too much, or he stepped in and did this, or he had a bad interaction you know, fires and hires coach coaches, you know, pays people to not play on the team, pays people to not coach the team. Um, very, very volatile, um, impulsive. You know, these are things that are often associated with Dolan. But this is really the first year that, that I've also heard about um, other players coming out and talking about a different side of Dolan. Tyson Chandler talking about some of the things that he did for him and his family when I think he had someone who passed away. Um, you know, we've heard some other players come out. I just heard a podcast recently with the now ex agent of, uh, Mitchell Robinson, um, uh, Myers Akai. Yeah. And he, he, he essentially, was on with Macri. Yeah. The, uh, Nick's film school. He was, he was on with, uh, one of the big guys on Nick's Twitter and essentially said, you know, James Dolan is a great guy. You know, he says that he will do whatever he needs to do to support the team uh, financially. And he said that his personal dealings with him were very positive. So, um, I don't know, you know, I, I think, I think if I had to guess, I, I might, I might lean towards Dolan over Gilbert, but I, I don't, I don't know that that opinion would be 
too informed. I just, I guess that, um, it, and it's so crazy because like, for me, I always think about the letter, right? The letter that Gilbert read, that yeah. wrote, and that's always the thing that is going to come back when it comes to him. Um, so, but you know, then I could also say, well, Dolan also had a very public situation with Charles Oakley. And, and now we see that Charles Oakley has, has really kind of like dirtied his own name for a lot of different reasons. But that, that, that visual of having him dragged out of MSG is, is terrible and it's really bad for optics. So I, it's a tough question to answer. I might lean towards Dolan, but I don't know, Evan, what would you, what would you say about that? See, it's tough. Um, I think I'd pick Dan just because I have more familiarity with him just because I feel like it's just a lose-lose situation. <laughs> that might be it. Like, yeah, it's I the like it's the devil you know. Yeah, what it is. yeah, that's, yeah, that's a perfect way to put it, Chip. I think both of them have their lumps as owners, but like at the same time, um, Dan, as awful as it sounds, after he had his stroke this year, he's kind of just kind of taking a step back and letting Kobe Altman sometimes run the show. Uh, He's been really just the thorn in the side of his general managers in the past where he likes to have input. Since he's the one who's writing the check, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. And um, it's kind of been a godsend in that regard where Kobe can kind of build his team and his vision. But uh, I'm waiting for Dan to kind of rear his ugly, rear his head again and just kind of murky the situation. But, you know, I'm kind of glad that hopefully, I mean, I'm hoping for you guys at least that after all the heartache and suffering that Knicks fans have personally gone through these years, um, you can just have, again, for both of us, just a semblance of stability with our teams so that there's normalcy and you can just enjoy the product on the floor and not worry about everything that's going wrong off the floor. Oh, my God. That would be uh, that would be amazing. I think for, for Chip and I, um, yeah, I mean, since 2012, 2013, that was the last time where I think we, we left our houses, you know, proud to be Nick fans. So, and uh, that feels like a very, very, very long time away. <laughs> you guys won the championship. You can be as proud any day you want and never like, <laughs> question the dysfunction. So maybe that's, that's like I said, winning cures all things. Like a championship max any stake. And I think the Cavs are still riding off that. But um, yeah, hopefully you guys come to that point soon because it'd be a lot of fun to have competitive basketball in both major markets in New York and LA with both teams. So that's just my two cents from an outsider's perspective. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think that's a good place to finish up kind of tying the two franchises together uh, in very similar spots in the rebuilds, but with, with plenty of questions left in terms of who they're going to invest in, what they're going to do going forward, who's going to be the primary decision makers. Are they, uh, do fan bases have faith in them? Um, plenty of questions left uh, to ask there. But uh, Evan, man, listen, um, I know Chip feels the same way. Very, very uh, big thanks for you coming on, man. You gave us a ton of great information here. Um, I think I could speak for Chip too when I said this is probably one of the better one of these pods that we've done. Um, so Definitely. If, yeah. If, if you can tell all the good people listening, um, where can they find your work on Twitter? Again, you know, the publications you're affiliated with um, and anything that you're working on that you want to plug going forward, uh, feel free. Uh, we touched on this at the beginning, but you could f- I host a podcast called Locks on Cavs um, with Chris Manning. He's a good friend of mine, and we've just kind of been having fun. We're just doing a lot of funky off-season content. We play a lot of tri- trivia with our friends that cover this team as well, and we just kind of try and keep things fresh and interesting. And my goal, at least with the show for now, is to – I know everyone's missing basketball, but life's really hard. And my goal is to, at least for 45 minutes to an hour of your day, I can entertain you and keep your mind occupied just to remove yourself from the harsh reality of the situation that we're going through. So, yeah, definitely give us a listen there. Check us out. You can find me on Twitter at Am Not Evan. Um, I tweet about just about everything that kind of comes to mind throughout the day. And, um, yeah, no, I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's been a lot of fun and just can't believe I actually had a really good time talking about the dysfunction of the cats <laughs> here for the last time. But, yeah, no, it's, it's therapeutic, man. It's therapeutic. Yeah, maybe that's, that's a good way to put it. It's, it's therapeutic and it's just kind of good to, uh, get it out there. And like, like I said, being a month removed, I kind of miss this weird franchise a lot, but Give me a couple weeks back, though, but I'm sure I'll be just as annoyed as I was before. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we need the NBA back. I, I can't wait. I would so much rather be arguing with Chip and, and talking with him about our coaches' rotations and who should be getting playing time and who shouldn't. Uh, and I cannot wait until we get back to that world. Um, and I know we're all looking forward to that. Um, but listen, man, once again, thank you so much. Uh, be safe. Be well. To anyone listening, uh, we hope you're doing the same. And uh, we will be back with you guys next week. Thank you.